Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing great. I should first mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, or the University of Colorado. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Bill Mallon, editor of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Dr. Mallon is well known to most members of our society through his role as editor, but for those of you who don't know him well, I'll review his background briefly. Remarkably, Dr. Mallon is the first person interviewed on the podcast with his own Wikipedia page, so you can look him up there. Dr. Mallon attended Duke College, where he graduated magna cum laude in degrees in both math and physics, while playing varsity golf, and while also being a all, two-time All-American and a two-time participant in the, two, in the NCAA tournament. During that time, he won, won over 40 tournaments and several championships, and he then turned pro and, won, and joined the PGA Tour, posting multiple top 10 finishes, playing in the U.S. Open, and being ranked in the top 100 multiple times. He then returned to Duke for medical school and residency and had an illustrious medical career, including many publications, many roles in the ASCS, including a past presidency, and a role as editor for the Journal of Field and Elbow Surgery, which he has had for a decade at this point. In addition, he's a leading authority on the history of the Olympic Games and has written over 24 books, for which he was awarded the Olympic Order in Silver in 2001. So truly an incredible career in three different areas, which is just incredible. It's really remarkable. Dr. Mellon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Rachel. Look forward to it. Well, why don't we get started with this podcast? Can you give us a brief synopsis of how JSCS has changed during your tenure as editor-in-chief? Some specifics, but really you can take this wherever you'd like. How have the number of submissions changed? How's the acceptance rate changed? What have you seen over this last decade? Well, when I started, which was, uh, I was chosen as the next editor in April 2008, in 2008, Bob Navizer, the previous editor, had 480 submitted articles for the year, and they published six issues a year. Uh, this year, we're going to have just a little under 1,500 articles submitted. Um, we'll publish 13 issues, and we have a subsidiary journal, uh, JSES uh, Open Access, which is about to become JSES International, that publishes another four issues. So. We now publish 17 issues, and uh, we receive about four times as many, or about three times as many uh, submitted articles as when I uh, uh, started. You know, it's really unbelievable. I'm just going to ask a, a question related to that. Um, with the introduction of the open access journals, um, which have become much more popular over the last several years, um, there are also some thoughts, you know, in terms of author submission fees and whatnot in terms of getting papers published. What are your thoughts as to the most uh, positive aspect of the open access journals, and why did you decide to take that direction as one of the offshoots of JSES? Well, um, we almost had to take that uh, direction. Um, there's a, a movement afoot uh, that started in England and Europe that all scientific publications should be open access so anyone can read them whenever they want to, that they shouldn't be only subscription-based. Um, the uh, movement at its most extreme says it should not only be open access, but there should be no author fees to publish. But 
you know, given that there's no way to get a publishing company to, to uh, um, actually be involved with something like that. So we sort of had to go to open access with author fees. Uh, we do not charge uh, we do not charge a fee for submission like JBJS and other journals do, but we do if you publish it uh, charge a fee. One of the good things about this for authors is the papers are read more widely. They're they're seen by more people, and um, it can actually increase uh, your personal impact factor. Which is there's several different metrics like that. One the most famous one is called the H index. Um, you know, where you can look up, you know, say Rachel Frank or Peter Chalmers and see how many times they've been published and how widely their publications have been referenced in other articles. Well, when more people are reading your articles in open access, there's more chance that they'll reference them, which will increase your H index or any of the similar metrics. Certainly, it seems like removing barriers for readers to be able to access the articles can, could only be good. Um, what you know, when you think about the articles that have been published, and I'm sure there's so many of them, what what has been your favorite one over the past decade and why? Um, my favorite one that we've published uh, since I've been editor was an article in which Paul Sethi was the senior author. And he was really the first uh, uh, surgeon who came up with the idea to use benzoyl peroxide uh, to sanitize the skin before surgery to try and prevent uh, cutie bacterium acnes infections. Um, I, I, we actually got some uh, publicity in you know, the national media for that, which I used to jokingly call the Clearasil paper because benzoyl peroxide is the um, most active ingredient in Clearasil or other acne medications. Um, I think that's changed you know, the way we practice. Uh, I, I no longer practice because the, the job has gotten so busy, but um, if I was practicing, I would definitely use a benzoyl peroxide or maybe uh, H2O2, which is the active ingredient in the benzoyl peroxide, for, for all my patients, especially with arthroplasty. And this has been confirmed now in a lot of other papers that have come out. There's been one or two that haven't confirmed it, but by and large, it looks like some form of using a benzoyl peroxide or active H2O2 can decrease uh the C acne's load on the uh, skin before you make the incision. Yeah, we, yeah, we looked that at that. Definitely... Oh. We looked at that Go same ahead. topic in in our own lab and demonstrated with with H two O two. And I I couldn't agree with you more. That's such an it's it's such a great idea that Sethi had to begin with, and such a practice like a simple change you can make to your practice that could make a palpable difference in infection rates. Yeah, the second I saw it. Um, I actually emailed uh, Joe Wilson, who's a, a young member of ASCS. I don't know if you know him, but Joe basically took over my practice when I when I stepped down. And I said, you know, and I also uh, sent it to Grant Garagus, who was at Duke, because Joe and Grant and I would work closely together. And I said, you guys need to start using this. This is this is something that may be a game changer, and uh, I think it has been a little bit of a game changer. Um, you know, you can't. We don't have numbers on whether this has decreased infection because you guys both know the infections are rare enough that to try and get numbers, you'd have to have like 100,000 patients in the study or maybe 50,000 or something like that. And you just can't do that study. But it definitely decreases the bacterial load on the skin. Absolutely. I think that that is a very easy practice changer, as Pete was mentioning, and um, one of the things that makes looking at literature in real time so important, and it's important that we have journals like this 
like JCS that allow us to see those articles hot off the press and get them published quickly. So turning this question a little bit in a different direction, as opposed to what you think is, or what you thought is your favorite article over the last 10 years, is there another article that you think um, has been the most important article or the most impactful article in JSCS over the last 10, uh, 10 years or so? I'm not sure I could say, you know, a single article, but, you know, my 10 years has definitely been the era, you know, of the reverse shoulder arthroplasty. And, you know, so many of the articles, you know, showing how well the reverse arthroplasty has worked have been so important. You know, I'm I'm a pretty much of an old fossil, unlike you two guys. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember in the 70s and 80s, we had constrained shoulder arthroplasties and they were terrible. They were all taken off the market because there were so many complications. So I was a little adverse to trying a reverse when I first heard about it. Uh, I had so many patients that could use it with, you know, cuff tear arthropathy. Uh, but we did other things that, to try and help them. It wasn't as good. You know, and I, I still kept being adverse to it a little bit when people said, well, we're going to use it for fractures instead of hemis, because I, I did fairly well with hemis in that situation. But, you know, the, the literature's really borne out that these do well. They they help people. And in fractures, it definitely looks like they, in general, do better than hemiarthroplasties for proximal humeral fractures. So I think all of the articles on the reverse shoulder have really uh, changed the way we practice shoulder and elbow surgery. Yeah, that's certainly been such a, that's probably been the biggest change in shoulder generally over the past 10 years. And it's it's always nice to hear when someone's an editor, they feel like that maybe they played a part in some big change in our practice that, you know, that's really helped our patients. Um, it's also remarkable to hear you say that you felt like you did pretty well with hemis. I think you must have just been better at them than the rest of us. Well, we didn't have an option. and. You know, they didn't do badly. The, and actually, I did a few reverses for fractures before I stopped practicing, but uh, I still continue doing hemis almost right to the end. In general, if you look at it, I think a well-done hemi that gets a good result actually does better than a reverse. The problem is that a poorly done hemi or one where the tuberosities fall apart does so poorly that they get no benefit at all to the procedure and then they end getting revised to a reverse and that's been shown not to be as good as a primary reverse so uh you know i, I wouldn't say i was better at it than you guys but it, of necessity we had to do it and you know i had failures i i can remember patients where the tuberosity just completely fell apart and i'm like you know looking like an idiot talking to the post-op but uh the reverse has definitely helped yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things there is, and this has been shown in papers published in the journal, is that even even a reverse, if the tuberosity doesn't heal, doesn't function as well as if you can get the tuberosity reduced and, and healed. Um, so it's such a, God, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that and the way things have changed. You know, we did a lot of things that you guys may not even have seen when you were doing your fellowships. I know you both did fellowships with Tony Romeo, who's just a, you know, a tremendous shoulder surgeon. And you know, we did things like uh, we changed the version. We pointed the humeral component uh, away from the direction of instability. The instability always wanted on cuff tear arthropathy always wanted to be anterior. So you retroverted them more. Uh, you know, we put, you know, uh, 
peck majors up there over the top of the subscap when there was nothing there to try and support it. And uh, I, I even did a few, maybe about three or four, where we actually rebuilt the coracochromial ligament uh, with an Achilles tendon allograft, wrapping it around the coracoid and then putting it up through drill holes in the acromion, making it. Dave Dines and I were actually talking about writing this up around 2005 or six. And then like about two years later, we realized like uh, nobody's going to do this anymore because now we have reverses. So uh, we stopped doing that. Did you think that it worked? Yeah. Uh, when, well, work is a relative term. It worked <laughs> in that it, 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 it didn't, uh, comp you know, it prevented anterosuperior escape. They didn't get much motion. Um, yeah. You know, but I, I, I'll tell you the, the worst case of cupterothropy I ever saw uh, was a woman that had been done, you know, I was in the private group in town. Mm -hmm. The woman had been done at Duke and it wasn't their fault. Just she got horrible uh, anterosuperior escape. She had no cuff. And the humeral head was almost coming out through the skin. And she'd actually gone up to see Cofield at Mayo Clinic in the late 80s. And I'm seeing her in the mid-90s. And she said to me, you know, he said he couldn't do anything. What can you do? And I just sort of had to shake my head and said, I, I don't sure I can do anything here either. And about a year later, she showed up in my office. And now the humeral head had eroded through the skin. And I was looking at the humeral head. And I was like, well, I guess I got to do something now. So that's what that's what I did on her was I I took the component out retroverted it to point it away and I I reconstructed the coracochromial arch and she didn't get infected and uh, the 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 humeral component stayed in the shoulder as far as I knew. That's certainly a win that's for sure. Um, why don't we take this in a different direction and um, get to something that might be um, a little interesting for our listeners and hopefully there's more and more of you listeners out there because this podcast is getting better and better. Um, we were wondering, and as Pete and I were thinking about this, when you were back on the tour, who was your favorite competitor? Who did you love to play against, or um, who did you look forward to playing with the most? <laughs> well, my my hero in golf was Ben Hogan, uh, who uh, was, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the three greatest golfers of all time are Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, and Ben Hogan, and I sort of favor Ben. I met Hogan once, but I never played with him. My favorite player among the big players that you know to play with was Gary Player. He and I got to be very good friends, and I played with him quite a bit. Um, I grew up playing as a junior and an amateur against Ben Crenshaw. Ben and I are the exact same age within about two weeks, and uh, that didn't usually turn out well for me. But uh, I, I enjoyed playing against Ben, and you know, because he was so good as an amateur. He he never turned out to be quite as good a pro as he had been as an amateur. Well, it sounds like you guys had some good times out there. Um, any specific memory that you can recall that um, uh, that might be something that us amateur players wouldn't really know about? Well, the the thing I. Rachel, I, I give talks around the country, or I, I have. I'm getting asked to do less and less of them now. But I would give talks to various doctor groups about the Pro Tour and what it was like. And, and what I'd tell them was, it's just like the NFL and the NBA, and people don't always imagine that. You know, you take a high school player, for him to move up to the next level at college, it's another magnitude of level up. And to go from college to the PGA Tour is another magnitude again. Those guys are really good. 
Uh, and then to go from the PGA Tour up to the Greg Norman, Rory McIlroy, Tiger Woods is another magnitude in itself. And I made the leap, you know, all the way up to the PGA Tour, but I couldn't get through the last one to get up to the top players. You know, those guys are just so good. And people don't always realize that because, you know, a lot of people play country club golf and they think, well, yeah, I got a guy who plays pretty good. But it's the same as in the NBA and the NFL. You see these great college players and they just can't cut it in, you know, the NBA or the NFL because the pros are so good. You know, I, I won over 40 tournaments in my career and I, I just I just wasn't good enough to make it uh, on the PGA Tour uh, at the top level. Despite. Well, it's certainly a high level for for any of us, and it's unbelievably commendable to be at the top of your game in in so many different fields. And um, it's really it's just so intriguing and interesting. And and uh, I, I I'd, I'd love to pick up some pearls and pitfalls not only in shoulder and elbow surgery, but also on the golf course with you at some point. I'm sure Pete would too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in, in terms of your careers and young surgeons' career, I I had the uh, good fortune a, a couple weeks ago and, and also sad fortune to be at the memorial service for John Fagan at West Point. Uh, you, know, you guys probably know of John Fagan from his sports career, although uh, our sports medicine career, he, he wasn't really a shoulder surgeon, but John was one of my mentors at Duke. And John told me something when I was a chief resident, we were going to a, an away clinic and he said, Bill, when you get out and practice, he says, Pick the society that means the most to you and just focus on that one. Don't try to be a member of every society and do everything in every society. And he said that way, you know, when they need a volunteer, you can volunteer. When they need something done, you can say yes. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't in an academic practice completely, although I had residents and fellows from Duke. But, you know, the only re reason I got to be an editor of the journal and, and got to be president of ASCS was I just focused on the one society like John told me to do. And I just I kept saying yes, whenever they asked someone to do something, I would do it. And, you know, Bob Neviser finally picked me to be an associate editor of the journal. And I asked him why he did that. And he said, because you never turned down a review says you always did them. And, you know, I became an associate editor because of that. And then I applied for the editor-in-chief and I got that but that's all because of what John Fagan taught me it's um but I think it's the the lesson that you you must focus to succeed is uh, a useful one and certainly something I still have a lot to learn about to be frank I it's a it's an interesting lesson coming from someone who's had kind of lived three lives I mean when I when I read about what you've done, it sounds like you've succeeded in three completely separate fields. Um, it's almost like you've lived three lives. I mean, it's it's remarkable. So what what it what have been the lessons you've learned? Like, what is wh how how do, how does that how does that fit in with what you just told us about focus? Like, what are the lessons you've learned about succeeding in different areas? Well. Um... You know, they were all at different times, although the Olympic stuff has kind of overlapped my medical career, um, but it's certainly secondary to my medical career. Um, you know, I, I wasn't pre-med in college. Uh, I didn't go to Duke to become a doctor. I, I went to Duke to become a professional golfer. That was that was my focus. I, I remember freshman week, I was walking on the quad with some guy, and 
he just said, what do you think you want to do after college? And I just said to him, I said, I'm going to play professional golf. And he just looked at me and he said, yeah, right. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, so, you know, that was separate. Then when I realized I wasn't quite good enough to make it at that level, you know, I had to do something else. So I'd been a math and physics major and I I was good in science. So, and I'd, I'd already had two shoulder surgeries. So I started talking to the orthopedist that operated on me and I decided to try and go back to medical school. Uh, it wasn't easy. I had to uh, go back to school for a year to get into med school. And uh, I had two deans of med schools tell me there was no chance I would ever get into a med school anywhere uh, in the United States. Um, but somehow or another, I pulled it off. Sounds like uh, you proved them wrong, to say the least. <laughs> what um. What are, of the of the different things you've done, what's been the most rewarding to you? Like, what are the things you've done that you'd say, God, I would, I would do that again in a heartbeat? And what are the things you've said, God, like, if I could do it again, I'm not sure that was worth the time. Um, well, if I could do it again, I would definitely uh, um, uh, go back to med school and become an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you, you know, the, the story I tell about that, um, the last few years, I've been fortunate because of my position as the editor and the president of society, I've been invited to be the graduation speaker at orthopedic graduations. And the message I give those uh, people finishing is, you know, don't do this uh, for money. Don't go into orthopedics for money um, because you'll make plenty of money. You're, it's not going to be a concern for you. Don't be a money grubber. You know, we make a lot of money and, I don't like people who always worry about like what the patient's insurance is. Just just do the right thing and take care of them. And my, my favorite story from that, I tell them, I said, here's the story of something you'll never get paid for, but I, I never would regret. I was on call back in the early 90s, and uh, I was at one of the away hospitals that we did a small one doing something. I can't remember what. And the Durham Hospital called me up and said, I got a five-year-old kid here with a completely displaced supracondylar humerus fracture. You know, and that's the type of thing our sphincter gets very tight immediately. And I was about a half hour away. <clears throat> and the resident called me and said, oh, yeah, he doesn't have a pulse either. And I'm like, oh, great. So I, I flew on back down to Durham. I actually called the hand surgeon at Duke. And I said, I'm going to take this to the OR and reduce it and pin it. And if the pulse doesn't come back, I'm shipping him across town to you. And I get to the e ER and... I meet his mother and father. His mother's a pretty blonde school teacher. His father's this guy, looks like he could have played pro football. He's a Durham police officer. They're just like Warden June Cleaver. They're the nicest people you could ever meet. And I took the kid to the OR and we reduced it, pinned it. And of course the pulse came back. He was fine. We kept him overnight. And about 17, 18 years later, I was in the checkout line at uh, PetSmart and this woman ahead of me, I didn't recognize her at first, turned around and said, Dr. Mallon, do you remember me? She said, I'm Brad's mom. And it was the, the uh, blonde school teacher I had met with Brad. And she said, he's doing great. And I, he said, he just graduated from Appalachian State where he played on the baseball team. I said, oh, yeah, what did he play? She said, he's a pitcher. And I, I just kind of thought, and I said, which arm did he pitch with? And she smiled. And she said, the one you fixed for him. And I, I just said, you know, I couldn't have felt any better. And I, I, I tell the residents graduating, I said, you'll never get that doing something else. And all the money in the world wasn't going to make me feel any better than I felt that day. You know, I'd gotten this kid's arm 
you know, this is, as you guys know, you can lose, you know, you can lose a hand in that situation. And, uh, he not only kept his hand and did well, he got a college scholarship to play baseball and pitched with it. Ah, what an incredible story, you know? Yeah, it was a, it was amazing. I, um, I love that story. It was so fulfilling. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that keeps us coming back, at least for me, is that the patient who comes back to clinic and says they're doing better. I mean, that's that that I think is way more valuable than any amount of money you could you could get. It's this job, and the highs are high, and the lows are low for sure. Yeah, and what I tell the residents that for us is that if you really wanted to make you know become a millionaire or make fortunes. You know, you could go to Wall Street or become an investment banker because every every one of us who was a pre-med, which wasn't me, but you guys, was certainly smart enough to do that. And uh, you could make a lot more money doing that if you don't go to jail. But, uh, you know, I, we're doing this for a different reason. And that's what I try to emphasize to the residents, that we're doing this for those moments at PetSmart where the mom tells you, her son's been doing great and finished college with a baseball scholarship pitching with the arm you fixed. It's also so telling, I think, about the nature of medicine, where if you can be in the same place for a longer period of time, you can really reap, see the re, re, see and reap the benefits of the good you can do for a community. Um, and I think it's so telling too that you were that it was for you it was it was that a lot of that's about your community and the thing you the thing you did for someone in your community. Yeah, that's true. If you can stay in one, you know, someone someone else told me one time says the secret to being having a successful orthopedic career is have one job. Don't don't be one of those people who've had four or five jobs and keep switching. He says, you know, you never get established. Nobody really knows you. You know, by by the time I finished, you know, all the nurses in town, even the ones at Duke and at UNC knew me. And, you know, I, I was getting a lot of referrals from a lot of places to do shoulder stuff that nobody else wanted. And, uh, you know, some of it was, you know, really hard stuff and maybe stuff I wouldn't have wanted either, but, uh, that's how you get your reputation is to take the stuff that no one else will do. Well, and it's such an interesting, uh, difference from the way that a lot of the statistics are going about people taking a job and then, you know, 50% of people changing within two years and us being on a more employed model and being seen from an administrative perspective as more movable pieces. You wonder how that will affect in the long term our job satisfaction to reduce the number of instances we'll have to have that encounter you just described. Yeah. Um, you know, I was fortunate uh, that I I picked a good job. Um and the way I picked it was when I was a resident at Duke, uh, the residents at Duke for a long, long time, they don't anymore, but used to rotate uh, with our private group at the private hospital in town. So I knew all the guys I was joining. I'd worked with them. I knew what they were like. I knew they, they were a good quality group and they were good guys. And you don't always get that. Uh, you, you can't always pick a job where you know the people really well. Uh, it's a little bit of a crapshoot um, for some people uh, more than what I had to deal with. I was, I was very fortunate. When you when you talk about why that was a good job, it's interesting to me that you highlight that you knew the guys. You know, do you do you think that knowing your partners that that's that's that the the partners are the most important part of the job? We talk about this all the time. We talk about 
you know, when you pick a job, you can't get everything you want, for instance. Yeah, I mean, when I joined the group, uh, I was the sixth surgeon in the group. Uh, my my former group now has 135 MDs. Uh, it's amazing what it's become uh, with all the mergers and everything that has, has gone on. And I knew all five of them. I had spent two full rotations, uh, six months with them when I was a Duke resident. So I knew, you know, I knew there was one guy who was a little ornery to deal with sometimes, and the other four were great to deal with. But even the one guy who was ornery was an excellent orthopedist. And it turned out he had a heart of gold once I got to know him better. So, um, you know, he just has kind of a gruff exterior. But, uh, uh, you know, when you go out for a job interview, you know, in some other state, like if you want to go back to your hometown or something, you don't really know the guys like I did. Um, it's very helpful. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting to me. I mean, we have a lot of discussions with fellows about, oh, when you pick your job, you you can choose if you're going to make a lot of money or choose if you're going to live exactly where you want to live, but you may not get the partners you want. It's, it's just fascinating to hear from from you about just because I think all that fits together. I mean, it fits with this, what you started with, with the story fits with staying in the same place, fits with getting the job. It's just a, it's just an interesting story, an interesting perspective, yeah, I think, on a career. Yeah, the one thing I I do tell residents, Peter, um, and I don't um, I don't know if you were a resident at Rush or not, but I usually tell the residents, don't do your fellowship where you did your residency. Yeah, because I I was about as uh, much of a you know whatever be called a Duke we you know as in Duke we do this at Duke we do that you know because I went to college med school and residency at Duke, and then I went did my fellowship with Rich Hawkins up in Canada. And it was great. Uh, you know, I got up to Canada. He did everything. I wouldn't say everything, but did a lot of things different than what I'd seen at Duke. And I started realizing, like, yeah, there's more than one way to do this. It doesn't have to be done the Duke way all the time. You know, just like it doesn't have to be done the Utah way or the Colorado way for Rachel or the, the Rush way for Tony or Grant Garagus. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do these things. And most of them work. Uh but, but you get exposed to different things. You learn different ways to do things. That comes in handy sometimes. You know, you're doing something one way that you've always done it, and, you know, it, it just turns out very badly. And if you know another way to do it, you can sometimes, you know, have enough experience to turn that around and use the other way and maybe salvage the case. Yeah, I I, I could not agree more. I was a resident at Rush and then a fellow at um... Washington University in St. Louis with Yamaguchi and Keener. And I am, um, it, it, it was com- so valuable for me. I could not agree more. I mean, I did it at some personal, I mean, I had to be apart from my wife for a year and um, that was hard for us, but I think it ultimately will have been worth it. Certainly, I, I couldn't agree with you more that the variety of training gives you a larger toolbox uh, in the operating room and in clinic. Yeah, absolutely. It, it also, um, you know, I'm not recommending everyone do this, but it was interesting to me uh, doing my fellowship in Canada, seeing the Canadian healthcare system, because it is different than the U.S. and seeing um, how that operated. And uh, it operates fairly well, except for the waiting times to see patients. Uh, you know, my favorite story of that was I asked Hawk in the middle of the fellowship one time. I, you know, I said, Hawk, uh, you know, the books always say if you've got impingement, which was a bigger deal back then. Um, you should wait six months, you know, PT injections and, you know, 
uh, don't don't even consider surgery until they've gone through six months of conservative treatment. I go, do you think that's always true? Is what I said to him. And he just kind of laughed. He says, well, I don't know, Bill. He says, uh, I never get to see anybody until they've already had the problem for at least a year because it's so hard to get into uh, the <laughs> system. <to see." laughs> so by the time they saw him, they were ready for surgery. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do. Uh, I, I I agree that it's interesting to see other way other other countries give something. It's a similar idea. It certainly gives you, you know, there's cultural difference in places that I think can give you insight into what is pathology versus what is our cultural expectation for the way things should go. That it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Yeah, you know, if you ask Rich Hawkins, which I have, you know, what's the biggest difference between practicing in Canada and practicing in the U.S., he says the American patients are just so much more demanding. Um, <laughs> they want they, they want more. They expect more. They expect more studies. They expect more tests. They expect better results. In Canada, it was, I mean, it was very much kind of the old almost family doc system where you tell them something, they'd go, okay, doc, you're the greatest. That's all I'll do. You know, in, in the U.S., they show up with the 34 sheets from the Internet and tell you they know everything about it. And that this is their fourth opinion. And, uh, you know, they're not happy if you don't make them 100 percent better. Uh, you know, I had a I had what I thought was a pretty good answer for that, Peter. I don't know. Maybe you'll want to use it. But when patients would say to me, you know, when we were getting ready to do a surgery, you know, in the pre-op evaluation and say, can you make my shoulder 100 percent? And I said, you know. I'm pretty good at this, but I'm not as good as the guy who built the shoulder in the first place. And, uh, <laughs> as, you, as you know, the shoulders are rarely 100%. I mean, they may be close, and they be, may be very good, but um, once you've got pathology, there's scar tissue and other problems in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great that's, – that's, that's a nice way to put it. I, I often tell people I, it's going to be better than it is now. I don't know if it's going to be normal. And um, I, I, I asked that question, that same patient that you talked about, is the shoulder a hundred? And I, it's, I think it's hard. It's really, there's very few procedures I think we do where the patients come back and the majority of them say their shoulder is a hundred. I think that's pretty uncommon. Yeah. Uh, maybe taking out a, you know, lipoma. <laughs> right. Something right. Like right. But, uh, you know, rotator cuff, uh, which is my, my favorite topic in the shoulder, uh, it's hard to make them normal. It's, you know, right. and, and Jimmy Andrews and I were talking about it one time. You know, you always read in the newspapers about some baseball pitcher who, you know, has a torn rotator cuff. And Jimmy said, they're rarely actually torn. And, and Jimmy said, a torn rotator cuff in a major league pitcher is a career-ending injury, pretty much. Um, you know, because of the stress they put on their shoulder, just can't take it anymore. Well, he once told me that he had more pitchers the return to play when he treated them without surgery and then he was treated with surgery with that injury. So I, I, I at least yeah. from him, I learned that you don't, you really don't operate on that in a picture. Yeah, um, that's true. And um, you might know Tommy Noonan, who's uh, at Stedman Hawkins, Denver. He's actually Rachel's partner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, Tom, and Tommy uh, was a Duke resident. I helped train him a little bit and then he did the, the Stedman Hawkins fellowship and he's the team doctor for the Colorado Rockies. And Tommy said, if you talk to a major league pitcher about shoulder surgery, they'll run out of the room because they do not want it because they know what the results have been like in all their associates. Yeah, they they know the story. This is about all the time we have for our podcast. I um I can't tell you how much I appreciate you having this conversation with us, Dr. Mallon. Um, this is incredibly valuable. It's um 
I, I, I am, I've, I've been a huge fan of your work with the, with the journal show that I will surgery. And I, I can't tell you what a contribution you've made to our career and to the, to all of our patients. So every, every, every doctor out there who's, who's had a, read a paper and that's changed their practice. You've played a part in that. And that's such an incredible gift to the rest of us and to, to our country really into the world in terms of treatment of shoulder nerve pathology. So for all of our shoulder nerve listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Peter.